Hi, I am Jen Matthews, and I'm an adoptee. You're listening to Conversations About Adoption, a podcast where I interview and converse with other adoptees and first parents about their stories and other issues around adoption. My goal is to spread the perspectives of other adoptees and first parents so we can challenge the common narratives and misconceptions of adoption and hopefully shed light on the social justice issues pertaining to adoption, as well as the issues adoptees and first parents face on a regular basis. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me today. I'm going to be talking to a 26-year-old transracial adoptee named Isabel, and uh, I'm very interested in hearing her story. I also wanted to mention anybody who is interested in being on the podcast, you can send me an email at info at conversationsaboutadoption.com. Just send me a brief overview. If you send me anything long, I'm not going to read it because when I have somebody on the podcast, I like to hear the details then for the first time, the same as everybody else who's listening. So Again, it's info at conversationsaboutadoption.com. Just send me a brief overview and let me know when's good times for you. Currently, um, my availability is kind of spontaneous. Wednesdays seem to be my best day to record, um, but it could change at any time. So again, thanks for being here. And we're going to be talking to Isabel. Okay. Hi, Isabel. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. So, um, you are an adoptee, right? I am. I'm a transracial adoptee. Okay. Why don't you uh, tell me some of your story? Yeah. Um, so I was adopted at two days old. Um, I live currently in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, I was born in Pittsfield and then I was adopted and lived about 30 miles north of where I was born. Um, my biological mom, so I, I, I'm going to use just first mom because I feel like that's a little bit more ethical. Um, my first mom, she had a very tough childhood and upbringing and it really put her, put her in a direction of like just poverty and not great decision-making. And a lot of it was just based off of survival. So there are a lot of choices that I think I've had to come into terms with being adopted. Um, But when I was adopted, my older biological half-brother, so my biological, so like my first mom's first son, and I are related, he was adopted into the same family as I was three years prior to my birth. And my oldest brother, who is Bolivian, was adopted from South America. So there was three of us in the house. Um, Yeah. So there was three of us in the house. Wait, you were all biologically related? No, me and my... um, So Keith is my um, older brother. And then Cristobal is my oldest brother. Um, Cristobal was a... basically born in South America. We are not blood related. Okay. Okay. But the other one is related to you. Okay. And then you say you were adopted at two days old. Now, do you just mean you were brought home by your adoptive parents at two days old? Because the adoption usually doesn't get finalized till uh, almost a year later, typically. Yeah. 
point. I think, yeah, I was brought home two days old. So I was adopted, I think, in, I was adopted 10 months after that, um, officially. Um, so realistically, though, what I was told was a lot of horrible things. <laughs> um, what happened from my first mom's point of view is that she was not making the best choices and she went to the hospital for a visit while pregnant with me and they immediately called child services. Um, and, you know, kind of didn't really give her the opportunity to make better decisions. They kind of just took me right away, um, which is unfortunate because she wasn't due to have me for another like three months and they kept tabs on her for like three months and waited precisely until she came in to give birth to me, to take me. So really she was just being like watched, you know, um, you know, and it's not her fault, I think, because she really just did not have the best life and the circumstances of my birth were not consensual. So it made it a lot more difficult for her to, you know, keep me and also, you know, the pressure of other people like, oh, you really want this baby and just all of the things that you hear from people that um, just aren't really that trauma informed about adoption. So. Okay, I have to. I like to dig into feelings here because a lot of times adoptees shy away from it because it can mm -hmm. be triggering. But yeah. I really feel like it helps other adoptees to hear how things make us feel so that other people don't feel as alone. Because that's something that really helped me because I struggled with my feelings so much. I was taught by my parents to just you know, don't cry, don't be a baby. And like, just put, I shove my memories, my feelings away and not have them, you know? And so it wasn't even until in 2013, I went to a um, adoption healing weekend with Joe Saul. And I know lots of people have different feelings about him, but I felt that his methods helped me to some degree, not all of his methods, but I didn't even realize that I was not able to identify what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so he helped me with that. And um, so learning what other people were feeling about certain things really helped me to feel less alone and less isolated in what I was feeling. And like, I know it's weird, but we're social creatures and having that, um, you know, it, it just it normalizes things for us, you know, and we don't feel so alienated. So that's why my little blurb into why I like to be like, so how did that make you feel? And I mean, I'm not, I want to go into counseling. Maybe that's why, but um, so my prolonged ramble here, I'm sorry. What I was trying to get at is like knowing that your conception was not consensual. Did you have like some serious emotional struggles with that? Were you, well, how did that hit you? Um, yeah. So my first mom never outright said it. Let's just be clear about that. She okay. used to this day to tell me who my father is. Um, mm -hmm. She won't tell me she's kind of just made up things. Like as I gotten older, I met her when I was 17. Okay. Um, so when I, found out like who she was and I asked her who our family is and I got to know people I was like well who's my dad and she's like well uh I don't I don't know I don't want to talk about it. I was I was too high just things that she just 
you know, and then she kind of said, well, I don't think he's a great person. And I don't think you'd want to know him and just things like that. And then she eventually did say, well, it wasn't consensual. So it was, she didn't really like give me the whole story. And when I found out about that, it made me feel a lot more alone um, than I, I mean, I always felt alone and I always felt different. And I always felt like I never really had a place anywhere. Um, and even as a transracial adoptee who is white presenting, still feel that way. Um, uh, racially ambiguous is a term I learned recently. <laughs> so I think having all of that stuff come to light for me really didn't give me a purpose to want to live. Um, it made me feel like, oh, wow, this is a terrible situation on how I came into this world. And was I even meant to be here, you know? Yeah, I, I I don't know. So I imagine your adoption was closed in the beginning. You had no idea where you came from, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like for me, and I imagine it's this way for a lot of other adopted people and their children. I was always coming up with scenarios in my head about what went on with them. Like, mm -hmm. did they die in a car accident right after I was born? Um were they like high school lovers and you know they wanted to run away but they got caught then you know or or that it was non-consensual like all these different scenarios i would play out in my head did you do stuff like that also and yes like what it would feel like you know yes and i also think a part of me was so confused about my racial identity who i was where i was from my culture all of it that I literally fabricated stories to people. I think oh, wow. as a child, I would say like, oh, I was born here and I'm a princess and just all of these very fantasy things because yeah. it helped cope with that. Yeah. Um, I didn't hold I was adopted until I was around seven or eight. So it was not, it was not that early. Um, I had already developed a sense of, I, I was working on developing a sense of identity. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah, I wasn't told till I was five. And I mean, my mom, my adoptive mom is Mexican and my adoptive mm -hmm. dad's Spanish. And I am like as European as they come. So I didn't have that self-awareness when I was a kid to realize that I was different from them at all. And my mom mm -hmm. really, she was kind of like you. She's very, nobody really had, was able to guess that she was Mexican. People would yeah. be like, you have an interesting accent. Where are you from? And she'd be like, well, guess, you know. And people would be like all over the place. And um, and I mean, she came to the States at 24 and didn't even know how to speak English. So she really tried to blend well, I guess. I don't know. But um, yeah, uh, being told at five, it really, it really hit me hard. You know, mm -hmm. like everybody knew. So she wanted me to be aware of it when I was in kindergarten. So somebody else didn't tell me. But like they say, anything past three years old is considered a late discovery adoptee because mm -hmm. it should just be part of the child's story from the beginning. And mm -hmm. I, I can't agree with that more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't hear about it from my adopted pa parents. My, my adopted brother, so my biological first brother, he told me because he was angry with me at something. And so he's like, oh, you're adopted, by the way. And I was like, and I ran to my mom crying like, no, I'm not, right? And she's like... We weren't going to tell her. Like, why did you tell her? You know, because they weren't going to tell you. 
right because they got me an infant and their mindset was oh if she doesn't know she'll be fine right oh my god I hate that so much right I do too and I think that's where my mom I think I defended her for a very very long time um I really really defended her I think she wasn't able to have kids like she wasn't like she didn't have the right parts and she talked about that and she wanted to adopt my brother Chris first so they went to South America and they did that and they were there for months and months and months and she got sick and there was just this big story about it and they had videotaped it um which was something my brother later on was able to watch um you know sort of like where he was from and all that which was he again he is very much in the fog he will tell you up down left and right he was saved and he may feel that way and that's okay he if he feels that way he's he's probably not ready to process but the point is that yeah i think my mom was very typical savior mentality um she and my dad were together when they adopted me and my brothers and then they divorced um when i was born you know, sort of like, I'd say about a year after they took, you know, sort of took me, um, they divorced. And so my mom was working full time and taking care of three kids who were adopted, who had behavior issues, who had trauma. Um, and yeah, that was the very early childhood stuff. There was a lot of stuff, I think, that I've had to process through my childhood where it's like, wow, that was not okay. As an adult, I can, like, if I ever had kids, I would never do that, you know, so. And she also was from a different generation of, I think, first of all, her family was very racist. Um, and as I got older, I became an emotional clutch for her. So it was kind of like, oh, I'm going to gossip. Let me tell you all about these horrible things you shouldn't ever know about your family. So she, not having a daughter, naturally, was like, oh. I'm going to tell you this, something you shouldn't know, like, oh, yep, your aunt is racist and doesn't like you because you're biracial and doesn't believe in interracial relationships. Oh my so, God. yeah, so she was just, <clears throat> was, she was a lot and I defended her for a long time. I love her dearly, but I just think she harmed me a lot as a kid. My um, adoptive mom was a big gossip too. Like the first time like anything would happen, she's on the phone calling the next person and telling them. Yes. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yeah, even a traumatic event. I mean, something, you know, horrible happening to your child and then you're calling your cousins like, oh, did you hear about this? This is what happened. Let me tell you all about it in detail. And it's it's like, that's my story. Don't share it for me. Like, it's mean. My mom would do that with everything. Like, it was, it drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of having flashbacks now because <laughs> I haven't thought about it in a long time. She was mm-hmm. like, fan, like the littlest thing. She would get into an argument with our neighbor, and uh, because our neighbor, we were really close. It was that like, hey, taking Nancy a cup of sugar kind of thing, you know, all yeah. the time. And like they would get into some kind of silly argument. Next thing you know, she's calling like the other bridge ladies and telling them about the silly argument they had. And I'm like, why? Yep. You know. Or some news from Mexico with her family and she would start calling everybody and telling them all about it. Oh, my brother <laughs> did this and my sister's doing that. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> oh, 
my mom's void needed to be filled. I feel like she felt she couldn't have kids, then she had kids, and now she's like, well, now I need drama. Now I need to tell people about all of this stuff that's going on. Um, she also had cancer for like three different, four different times. Um, So she actually was not able to take care of us the way that she should have. And because my father went to court to try to get us kids back when he got some financial stability and a house and all of these things, and he really wanted us kids back, um, my mom used the cancer card and said, well, don't take me away from my kids. And the judge said, well, how dare you take her away from her kids? She's sick. But what the judge didn't take into consideration was the amount of abuse that was going on in my in my childhood home that my mother could not prevent. You know, it she just was not. I mean, you can imagine a woman in bed 24 seven smoking cigarettes, you know, taking medication. She became severely addicted to medication. So it's she was just not capable of taking care of three kids and working full time and being sick. So where was the abuse coming from if it wasn't like from her? Um, some of it was from her. The other abuse was from my um, biological brother who was abused in daycare. Oh. Um, we went to the same daycare together and there were some kids who were being abused and abused other kids and then my brother did the same to me. So it became sort of, you know, a trickle down effect where it was hidden for a very long time. And my mother did not want to seem like a bad parent. So when it finally did come to light, it was, are you lying? You lie all the time. Are you sure you're not lying? Oh, no. So, yeah. So I think like she also was incredibly inappropriate. Like, I couldn't even explain it to you. Just so inappropriate, like her boundaries, like it just like my brother and I were old enough to have our own individual identity and our space and our boundaries. And she really didn't allow that. So she could not let go of her own trauma. She adopted three kids and just didn't ever fill that void that she wanted. I think a big part of that is um now the void thing i'm gonna say like that just goes to show people think that having a baby or adopting a baby when you can't have a baby is going to they're like oh we know it's not gonna fix it and it's like well then why are you so worried about it being a womb wet baby you know yeah yeah Uh, you know if if you're not trying to fulfill something like why you know and but like my mom had a lot of trauma too and I always try to reflect on like the time that they were living in and growing in and like even I was born in 71 and their therapy was like very stigmatized if you had to go to the shrink you know because there was still that old like cuckoo's nest mentality when people thought you were crazy that's where you had to go was the asylum and so it was still like kind of changing. Now there's way less stigma on mental health and there's more awareness now, which is really good. But like my mom didn't even realize she had trauma is the thing, you know? Yeah. And, and it's probably, there's no excuse because they need to like all heal and grow and learn. But I think people get stuck in that. And part of like understanding trauma 
I think helps us figure out how to heal with it. You know what I mean? How to work, how to understand it. Does it make sense? Yeah. And like, they don't, yeah. even, there's no awareness for them. Like recently I saw this TikTok video of this woman. I think it went viral. She's a Gen X mom. And she's talking about how if your kids go no contact with you, you're the reason why. And she's openly acknowledging that she fucked up, that she was abusive. She thought she was being a good mom, but she wasn't. She was abusive. And this is why her kids chose to go no contact. And it was all about acknowledging that and taking responsibility for the fuck ups people make as parents, you know? And so, like, I don't think it's anything my mom would have ever done is acknowledge her mistakes. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's like, even if they did, even if my mother acknowledged all of the mistakes she made, which honestly she wouldn't, she would never do, um, it still would, there would still be trauma and there would still be a lot of healing and there'd still be a lot of relationship trust building again that I just think would take up so much of her time that she almost doesn't see it as worth it. Yeah. It's, it's sad because again, with my mom's generation, like she was, she also had a whole family that just weren't, I mean, they practiced, I mean, hitting you when you were doing bad and, and there was a lot of essay that was swept under the rug in the, and, you know, in sort of that generation that, you know, it still happens, but it was definitely a lot more hidden. And my mom has so much trauma that she just never processed, you know, she just never processed it. Just like my first mom has trauma. She never processed. And right. Yeah. So yeah. Generational. Yeah, it truly is. And that's the only thing, like we can just keep, you know, hoping to do better. You know, I'm, I'm probably close to your adoptive mom's age, judging by your age of 26, you know. And like it's crazy. I have a, a biological half sister that is I'm 18 years older than her. And like we relate to each other so much. I like each other a lot, but it's like I could be her mom, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's wow. crazy. It's weird how adoption does this stuff, you know. So tell me about your, um, you went through a reunion at 17 is when you met your mom. Right. So my, so, okay. So I went to boarding school for about four years. Oh, wow. My mom handled my behaviors. Um, My my behaviors were due to trauma. It's, you know, they were due to, and my simply like at the time fighting, 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 fighting. And when it mattered, fawning and and I was there for four years. And honestly, I think for the first two, I absolutely hated it. I hated it. And then the second two, I'm like, I love it. I don't want to go home. I hate home. You know, all those things. Um, wow. Boarding mom school. ended up me back at 15. And I mean, I had gone through an, an whole childhood of being replaced in foster home because of the behaviors I exhibited. So when I finally was back with my mom, I had developed a sense of routine where I was getting myself up. I was feeding myself. My mom was in bed smoking cigarettes. So I think I got myself to the bus on time. And for two straight weeks, I did that. My father found out that I was, you know, not taking care of myself, not because of my fault, right? Because yeah. of the adult wasn't. 
And he's like, all right, you're moving in with me. So I moved back to Pittsfield, which is where I was born. And I had no idea like where my first mom was. I didn't, I mean, I always asked my dad, can I please meet her? Can I please meet her? And he always said to me, when you're a little bit older, yes. And I think because he was born, so he grew up in a military family. He really didn't understand emotions. Um, He really didn't care, honestly. So if I were crying about something, he'd be like, stop crying. You know, he didn't really, he didn't, he wasn't really like that. Um, Not nurturing. Yeah, he wasn't really nurturing. There are times, I mean, he used to make jokes and stuff and he was nurturing like that, but it was never like intimate like that. Um, But when I was finally 17, my, my stepmom is a pastor at a United Methodist church. And that is where we decided to meet. And so she came, kind of came into the room and for the longest time, I almost imagined what she would look like. Um, and now this is a black woman who I used to look around in Walmart for black people asking if, you know, hoping that they would see me or notice me and hoping that they would take me away because I thought I was stolen. And that's how, that's very much how I felt as a young girl being like pulled along by their mother. Um, I would like seek out black faces and hope that they would see me. And so when I finally met her, I was just, just so overwhelmed and so happy. And I met my little sister Shateva at the time and Shateva was like six and she was like the cutest little thing. And we like really bonded right away. Um, But with bonding became like that uncomfortability of overseeing, Mm -hmm. you know, her, her language was all up on you. Like she would sit right up next to you and breathe right in your face. And for me, I grew up in a white family that didn't do that very conservative family who didn't, you know what I mean? And she her family, her black family was very like touchy, like, oh, girl, like, come over here. Let me pull you along. Like, what's your hair? Like, she would like touch my hair. And, you know, like, that's, again, not something I experienced. Um, So I think that culture shock for me mm-hmm. was eye opening, like, whoa, she's a completely different person. And as a child, I was like that, but then was kind of told it was sort of beaten out of me, like, you can't be like that. Right. That's right. not what we, not how we act. Yeah. But culturally, that's how she acts. Right. Um, you know, she just, you know, for a while we did Sunday dinners and then I would stop showing up, not because I didn't love her or care about her, but because I couldn't breathe. You know, she was so overwhelming for me. And I also hurt a lot because of what I had missed out on. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a hard thing with reunion is you need space to process. Mm -hmm. It was something I, um, somebody that was on last week, we talked a lot about reunion and how important it is to give yourself time and space to process. Because if you're enmeshed like right away and there's no time to breathe, because that was a mistake I made. Um, I spent a couple years searching and then I talked to my grandmother on a Monday and I met her on a Wednesday. And I mean, that's, that's like fast. I didn't give myself any time to process any of what I was feeling. And it was really hard. 
And then that whole, like, when somebody is so culturally different from you, I, I mean, it's a lot. That's a lot to process. So yeah. that's why they talk about the honeymoon period. I think everybody kind of goes through that. You're like so excited. And then you get hit with all the, oh my God, I missed out on this and I missed out on that. And that hurts so bad. Yeah. So. But she also had those reactions too. So it felt a lot like abandonment when she didn't follow through with things. Yeah. And it felt for her when I didn't follow through on things so we hurt each other unintentionally I think a lot yeah um, you know I didn't show up for something oh how do you think your sister feels um actually I think that's how you feel right <laughs> like, yeah you know? but it's hard to make it about yourself you know you don't want to sound egocentric yeah um I mean, we took a couple trips together just out of town and we talked and there were things that she apologized for. You know, we've had a relationship now since I was so only about nine years. Oh, my gosh. Saying that out loud. Wow. So I just so I can say that. But like, yeah, we've on and off. We were not talking several times. Um, Just we just are just so similar. So it's like we butt heads and. She says things to me that are hurtful. And then I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm better than you. Leave me alone. Never talking to you again kind of thing. And that's just like our dynamic. And she does come back and she does say like, I'm really sorry for how I said that and what I said. And, and it's, it's, it does heal some things, you know? Yeah. That's, that's good. That's like very mature of both of you. Like I've heard stories where sometimes the moms are so traumatized they kind of get stuck in that age you know mm-hmm. and so emotionally they're stuck at like whatever age they were when they relinquished like 17 yeah. or 18 and so it sounds like you know you guys have come to a pretty good understanding with each other are you able to communicate with her the fact that like you felt overwhelmed by the way she was like touchy-feely and loud and close and all that stuff I explained that to her as I got older and was able to sort of verbalize that. I yeah. had to do therapy around. So here's this. Four years ago, if you were speaking to me about adoption, I would tell you it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I was just so <laughs> happy. Um, I did three or four years of therapy with a transracial adoptee. Yeah. I didn't even know the term four years ago. Yeah. So that I was you know, I, I really bonded with, and she was very supportive of my racial identity and what I was going through. She was helping me get out of the fog. I mean, the first question that she ever asked me, which was like, I cannot believe I can still remember it to this day. (laughs) How does it feel to be taken away from your black home to be abused in your white home? Wow. And that was the most powerful question I've ever been asked because I didn't even know what to tell me. Sorry, not trying to swear, but I didn't even know what to say. You know, yeah, I was like, yeah. like why? Wow. What to say? <laughs> so, it makes you really think about it. Mm-hmm. And, well, it helped me start the conversation in my head like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. Wait a minute. Why, why am I not more mad about this? And I think... I was fawning for a long time, like, oh, my adopted parents are so great. My brother is such a horrible person. (laughs) Realistically, my brother was abused for a very long time by my adopted family. They were not good to him. Mm. And he 
abused other people because of it. So I blame them for my abuse because if they had cherished him and loved him and really put him in a position to, like, he passed away in the fall um, because of a drug overdose. But that's how much pain he was in. How old was he when they adopted him? He was three. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was a toddler. Well, well, the story that, so actually, you know, it's funny. I really don't listen to what my adoptive parents say about our story anymore. I I only my first mom. And she said that she was 15 years old when she gave birth to him and she was in foster care and that she kept him with her in foster care for a long time. And the foster mom she had, had actually said to her one day, oh, if you want to go like hang out with your friends, you can do that. And she trusted her and said, okay, well, can I take my child? And she's like, no, if you do that, then I'm calling the police because you're abandoning him. And, you know, my, you know, I know I'm stubborn, but she was like, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. And ended up taking him. Um, And they saw that as like inappropriate. And I think she got like several warnings or something like that. And then um, what she explained to me was there was a few times that she ran off because she was so overwhelmed and upset. And instead of them really sort of supporting her, they said, well, we're going to adopt your child out now. Mm -hmm. Um, They put him up for adoption and he was adopted after my brother, um, Chris, was from Bolivia. And so Chris was five years older than me and Keith is five years older than, or three years older than me. Well, was, and like I said, it's, he had reactive attachment disorder and his, I mean, he really, I, in my childhood, I really did not see him connect with anybody, but my family was just unkind. So I have a question about Mm -hmm. reactive attachment disorder because I don't know. Are you on TikTok at all? Yes. Okay. There's a lot of talk about Rad lately on there. <laughs> um, there's one one woman in person in particular who she's got quite a story, and I'm not going to tell it for her, and I'm going to butcher her screen name if I try to say it. <laughs> but she talks a lot about Rad. Okay. And she was diagnosed with Rad. And she believes it is a bogus diagnosis that all RAD is, is a traumatized child acting out because they don't have the language to communicate what, how their traumas affected them. You know, they're child, yeah. they're children. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because the more I hear her talk about it, the more it makes sense, you know. And I just was wondering what your thoughts were on RAD. If you think it's like, where do you lean on it? since you've seen it um my brother was misunderstood that's how I see it I think yeah obviously it's easy to slap a label on a child who has who's symptomatic of something right um it was simple for the hospital when I was 19 to diagnose me with borderline personality disorder when I don't have it um so I think for my brother his behaviors I mean, my mother was very good about stretching the truth, the behaviors that she saw because she genuinely was scared. She never really saw kids act like this before. And she's like, well, I need to tell people. 
So I do think they kind of slap the label on him. And I do repeat it and say like he had rad, but I think thinking back on it, it's, he really didn't have anybody. My dad and my mom divorced. Yeah. And not able to split her time between three kids who really needed it. And my dad was very unavailable because of the circumstances of their divorce. Yeah. Um, and I think my dad only wanted two kids, um, is what my mom told me. So when I was born and they adopted me, it really, really set him off with the stress. So I think when he left my brother, Keith was very upset about that and didn't know how to process that. And so it's another loss for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I hear you on the whole rad thing because I think adoptees get diagnosed with with the just most ridiculous things that don't even that don't even make sense. And what I mean, BPD thing has to do with my my reactions to intimate relationships. I mean, when I when I was 19 or 20, I was making like horrible decisions. Right. And they were literally reactions based off of losses of relationships or toxic relationships and those reactions were symptomatic of borderline personality disorder but really it was just my attachment issues well and beyond that you know that part of the brain the prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed until you're in your early 20s and that's supposed to help with your um spontaneity or something like that i believe i'm probably not using the right word because i'm struggling to find the right one but you know what i mean or impulsivity that's what it is it's to help with and that's why a lot of people tend to make like big mistakes in their you know even into their early 20s well if you if a guy asked me at that age to run away with them i would pack up all my things and run away right If they asked me to have a baby, I probably would have had a baby. You know, they were, I, my trauma was so severe that in my brain development, I was probably presenting at 15 at 19 years old. So I think, you know, I don't know. I just feel as though there are a lot of diagnoses out there and a lot of people who are not trauma informed about adoption, just not informed so you're saying when you were 19 that like emotionally you were probably more like a 15 year old mm-hmm. well in the same with if i when i was 15 i was more like 10 um my yes. mom helped me back in middle school like i went to boarding school right and she's like yeah let me meet at the school i don't think you should come home this year um huh. and i was like why and she's like well you're just not mature mind you i'm like hiding in wardrobes and pretending i'm in narnia because literally I how was I supposed to cope yeah right and, I, and let's be real I love Narnia yeah me too <laughs> I, I for a long time I used to almost pretend that I saw people sitting next to me that were not real people and that they were my reality and they were safe and they were connecting with me um because reality for me was too painful. Why would I, you know? It's really interesting because I've never really heard anybody else say that before. And that's how I was when I was a kid. Like I was babysitting kids in my neighborhood because I was responsible. Like starting around 14, like 
watching four kids like a lot of kids a lot of responsibility <laughs> like i think about that now and i'm like oh my god um but like i remember being 16 years old babysitting my next door neighbor who was like eight and playing barbies with her like i was a 10 year old and yeah. like i always felt like i was in some ways i was older than i was and then in other ways i was much younger than I was you know what I mean I got along That's better with people that were older and younger than with me than me but not my own yeah. peers and stuff it's interesting well and also that's the I feel like for me that's a fawning because for adults it's like yeah I know exactly what to say to get along with you yeah but then children like little kids I would play with kids seven years younger than me yeah. like boy trucks and my little sister was seven years younger than me so I would play Barbies with her um sorry explaining that my stepmom and my dad had a baby okay was, okay so that's that that's what I mean okay. by that yeah it was it's I just I almost wondered if it was like a soul experience like oh my gosh is there something like that I should have been telling a psychiatrist but no like, <laughs> yeah. I, totally like hanging out and talking you know to people from Narnia and I'm <laughs> pretending horseback riding and now I've got a bow and arrow and like I would yep. you know but imagination and it's play therapy essentially I'm coping yeah, yeah exactly exactly mm -hmm. that's really interesting yeah wow yeah. And and just go ahead no I was just going to say, and like another piece of that, when I had said that, you know, I sort of, you know, lied to people as a kid and was like, yeah, I'm from this place. I was very, very tan when I was like a child Yeah, and I had, so before my parents started chemically relaxing my hair, um, I had just this cute little Afro and I would literally, my mom bought me this really pretty skirt that really looked like you would get it from India, like, or Bolivia. Like she had a lot of stuff from Bolivia and she gave me this skirt that I wore and I wore it to school I went back to boarding school and I told someone, I was like, yeah, I'm an Indian princess. Like, didn't, didn't you know that? Like, I'm like, I'm like cursed. I'm like an Indian princess. So I would like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I didn't know anything about my identity, about my race. I was literally racially ambiguous and I, people really can't tell. <laughs> and so it's. That can be it, fun when you're a kid. Right. I was like, oh, I'll tell you all these great stories and I'll really develop my identity based off of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Nobody really realizes or I don't think people thought back in the day when they were establishing adoption the way it is now that genetic mirroring might be important. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it might be a little bit, just a little, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, cutting my hair off when I'm 10 and being labeled a boy, you know, it's just not, it's not, not good. Not for me. Like, I've got to say you, you definitely racially ambiguous, definitely, you know, applies. Cause like, I would have never guessed that your mother was black looking at you with your hair back. Yeah. I can't, it, you know, <laughs> I have no clue. And I know I can understand how that would make, make it difficult in some ways like to Look. know where you belong or feel like you belong you know mm -hmm. that's why tiktok's not fun though sometimes <laughs> yeah 
we try to have these conversations. Like, I think the internet in general just is not nice, but no. I was talking about white presenting and what it means and white passing and the difference and racial ambiguous and all of these things. And people will just label you. And it's, it's invalidating and traumatizing. Yeah. And I was going to say that my dad, when I was younger, that as far as race goes, he used to work at a grocery store. Yeah. And we would just like run down the aisles when we saw him on the other side of the store. My mom would drop us off just to kind of say hi. And he one day, or actually a lot of the time, he would kind of line us up, me and my brothers. And my brother from Bolivia looks black. Um, and my my brother, who is my biological brother, he looks Puerto Rican. And I look biracial. But then in the winter, I look white with an afro. So he would line us up and he would say to strangers, what race do you think these kids are? Oh, my gosh. We're just like. That's so inappropriate. Like toys on a shelf, you know, and it's again. Inappropriate. Right. And it's and it's makes us first of all, it put puts you in a position where you're like, oh, my gosh, if they think I'm that, am I supposed to be that? Oh, my gosh. That's you so know. fucked up. So yeah. Sorry. No, that's it, fucked up. No, it really is. <laughs> oh god. Um, yeah, it really is, and yeah, oh I don't know. It was just not. It was just weird. It, it's definitely something people do when they don't understand race and how <sighs> your and your identity form, and and you're just kids, and you're like having to live through this, and like like 20 years later process it like what the fuck was that <laughs> again though like my brother's trauma i think chris yeah. my brother i he was adopted when he was five yeah um, from south america and what my mother calls wow. a poor area. so i don't know what his story is and i won't say you know any more about it just kind of saying this that i don't know what he i don't know what he endured yeah i but there is a reason he compartmentalizes everything and that he is the family man to this day that he will defend my mother left and right and there is a reason he refuses to come out of the fog i'm not trying to overgeneralize but i'm going to take a step in that generate in that general direction and say that if you pay attention in adoption communities online it's predominantly female mm-hmm and this just, I, the woman who helped me come out, not necessarily come out of the fog, but go through a reunion and the whole thing. Um, she was a first mom and she ran this large group in in the Pittsburgh area. And um, it was like the first online group I was ever a part of. And she mentioned that something, she had a theory about male adoptees. She's like, they're more loyal to their adoptive parents she's like i'm not sure why but there's definitely seems to be more of a sense of loyalty among the male adoptees whereas she's like maybe it's because women are the ones who reproduce who give birth there's something more in that connection there and maybe that's why more women search than men but i don't know it's interesting that's so interesting to hear because i um 
because like somebody had said to me, oh my gosh, inappropriate recently. Oh, when you have your own kids, I bet it's going to be such a nice connection because I know you didn't have a connection at birth. Like, oh my God, don't say that. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, I have a feeling that that relates to that connection that you have with your baby when they're in utero. Yeah. Um, where you just feel so differently about how you would have acted. Why would, you know, why that, that connection is so sacred and for Chris, I mean, I think I saw his facial features change when I had said something about my mom where I was like, well, you didn't, you weren't there. Like he's five years older than me. He wasn't there when he saw, when the, some things were happening. Yeah. It's like you know. And he looked at me, he's like, how can you say that about my mom? How can you say that about our mom? And it's like, whoa, like yeah. his intense reaction to that, just really, he would have gone to battle for her for anything. Yeah. For anything. And not that he doesn't have a right to feel very loyal and defensive of her. I mean, maybe a part of him really does feel saved and that's totally valid if he wants to feel that way because it's his experience, but sure. Who am I to change him? Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely when you do have, if you do have a child, which this world's crazy. So I, uh, it's a different thing, man, when you grow up and there's no genetic mirroring and then Mm -hmm. you have a kid and you, you're watching them grow up. Mine's 12 now. And I look at him and I'm like, oh my God, because I see myself at that age and it's so weird, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. it really is like i i see more of me than my dad my or his dad but maybe i'm just looking for myself more i don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah <laughs> well you're for like that validation too of like oh wow i acted like that but that's just me that's just who i am like yeah i'm not wrong i'm not a terrible person like yeah that's just that's my quirkiness or that's my bravery or and it's yeah. been interesting because my kids like naturally excels at math and stuff. And I found my, uh, or I reconnected with my birth dad and he was like, oh yeah, my dad was an accountant and he didn't even use an adding machine. He just run his finger down the numbers and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so like those little things you still, you look for them when you're an adoptee, like people take those details for granted. Sometimes, you know, or else you're at like a family party and they're like, oh, he has dad's nose. And, but, you know, like people do look for it. But then, like, when adoptees talk about it, they're like, yeah, whatever. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, well, it's my mind, the people that comment on TikTok videos, they're like, DNA doesn't matter. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, okay. What world are you from? Like, um, like, do we forget that it mat- matters in the medical world too? Do yeah. We right. just like, ignore that because for me I mean it's TikTok for me oh my gosh it's horrible I've had to delete my accounts because I'm like I can't do this but <laughs> I I get my impulsivity I just can't not make a comment I just can't not make a video like when yeah. I'm in the moment and passionate about it I was like I'm gonna talk about this and I don't care <laughs> anything to say about it and then probably an hour later I'm like regretting it because I'm getting comments that are just mean what's your um, handle on there because I think I've seen you now that I'm I'm thinking about this oh <laughs> um Isabel May or Isabel Bell, May it was Bell Mays or something and now it's Isabel May okay or something um I've done videos and I've deleted them just because 
because I just I don't know what it is just like I do them and I delete them because it's like oh all this mean I think I'm also afraid of people thinking I'm like blackfishing or something because I'm literally biracial I promise you I would just say I'm biracial and then not be you know yeah weird people do do that I can see why people are not great people so but yeah it's just so intimate to you put something out there and then you take it back it's kind of like that um attachment stuff of like you put there and then you're like never mind I'm taking it back because that's too much (laughs) I have my account all locked down now I I had a weird incident happen back in I forget when it was now I think maybe November where somebody was trying to like blame me for something and I got all paranoid because I've seen how when a bigger content creator calls somebody out then it's like the attack begins and everybody and it's really kind of it gets kind of ugly sometimes and there's a lot mm-hmm. of drama and yep, side and taking and um, it's like I try so hard to not participate in any of it and here I got completely dragged into it meanwhile I'm behind the scenes that person and I had been messaging on Facebook and I was like totally supportive and was like it's okay you didn't do anything wrong and then they're like, oh, well, you made this video back then and it's on you. And I'm like, whoa. Like, <sighs> And I just made this video immediately like, like I'm sorry for whatever I did. Mm-hmm. I, you know, okay, that wasn't all right. I apologize. I'm going to fix this. I always try to fix whatever people call me out on if I do make a mistake. Yeah. And because um, sometimes I accidentally misgender somebody and, you know, don't realize that they prefer to be called they. And I'll be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> And I'll delete the comment. I try to fix it. But like, I got really weird about that. After that, it got really funny about having my face out there and not really wanting to have my face out there, you know? And now I'm yeah. doing an internship and these people are talking about TikTok. And I'm like, oh shit, I don't want them finding my stuff. <laughs> so I did. I made my account private for now because I'm just like, mm, you know, so. Well, isn't it like the digital fingerprint kind of thing stays out? And the thought of that is scary because there are that I grew up learning that were not right. They're just not right at all. And I think I had gone back on my Facebook when I had one from like four, four, what, 10 years ago. And I'd said some things that just like, now I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah, we go through different phases too. Right. Yeah. Right. And my family support, my family, they were the type during 2016 to kind of say something like, oh, well, why are all these riots happening? I don't get it. You know, they were the type to kind of say like, like, I don't get it. Like, what are they fighting for? Uh Um, As I got older, I was able to kind of like see it from a different perspective where they're kind of stuck in that mindset of like, yeah they're not you know politically they say things and then as a child you develop that and you're like oh yeah and you go to your friends and you're saying those things or you're posting on facebook right you're posting on so very impressionable kids are impressionable yes yes are. definitely which makes adoption all more if it's unethical all more, i mean i've always been family preservation like yeah. i've always been that someone said to me like why wouldn't you adopt like adoption's not bad it's like you have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you know what you're saying? Like, can I explain it to you? But 
I do transracial adoption presentations at my job, which is, oh yeah, I work a health agency. Um, and I've always had to be very clear at the beginning, this is not up for debate. Right. Not up for debate. I'm not going to sit here and debate it with you. If you have questions or concerns, email me later. I may not respond to you if I feel like <laughs> too much waste of my energy, but I will not be in a position to debate. This is for training purposes and you will hear my lived experience. Yeah, that's great. It's taken me a long time, but that's great yeah. though. I'm so glad, like I've been speaking out for a long time. I've never done like public speeches or anything, um, you know, and at 47, I decided to go back to school for social work. And so I'm a senior now. So I'm doing like, I have internship and it's crazy. Um, Cause I never thought I would be here, but here I am. And, um, yeah, it's just trying to do something, you know, to like make a change. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention my kid's going to be home in about 10 or 15 minutes. So <laughs> that's fine. So <laughs> you're going back to school in the fall, you said? Yeah. Or uh, I took like a long break, I think, because I could not focus on school and work and it was too much for me and my ADHD. And so I just, I mean, I think I tried to do it one time. I was doing like full time and then doing full time. And then I just, I think I failed two classes, dropped out of one. It, I don't want to do that to myself again. So the plan is that because I have a wonderful supervisor that I will do some schoolwork during hours that I'm working and also, you know, do virtual classes. And it'll hopefully be a lot less on me because at the time I was in school before I was doing um, ASD interventions with children who are very aggressive, mm. who are ASD, um, working at a residential place and doing 15 hour shifts. So that was, that was, I think, primarily why I had chosen to wait a little bit until I was a little bit more stable in my job. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, though, that you have it worked out that it should work well for you. I, I don't so. do so well with online classes myself. I need that in person, like getting lectures and stuff like that and actually talking to a teacher because I have ADHD, too, and my brain will just be like, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> like, I, I'm very yeah. bad about that. Yeah. So, I dissociate. <laughs> That's what yeah. happens. And like, I really have a hard time with all the reading. So I do um, audible and I listen to stuff while I color, you know, mm -hmm. so it's, it's handy. Yeah. But yeah. I, I've just, I had a couple concussions and it's affected my ability to like sit and read for a long period of time. So mm -hmm. at least I got a way to work around it. <laughs> got to do what you got to do, you know? Yeah. So, but that's awesome that you're going to go to work for school, social work, going to school for social work. And what do you plan to do when you graduate? Do you have a, a um, plan? Good question. Um, and I get it if you don't. <laughs> I guess I don't really know yet, but I think my plan, well, I mean, to be fair, I haven't even gotten my associate's degree. I've just been like trying to get the basics down and going back to school after that long, I was always terrible at math. And to be clear, I was bounced around a lot as a child, so I did not get that proper education that you would normally would. Right. So there was a lot of like missed math and science and things that they expect you to know in college that they kind of expect you to go from high school to college and then 
be able to continue working on. Um, you know, here's the thing. I have math anxiety really, really bad because of bad experiences with when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and like just being bad at math. Something I've learned, all my professors have said, except for one, uh, people that go into helping professions usually suck at math and it's just how it is. And they don't expect you to like do really well. It's like I had to do like a pre-algebra math class, then an algebra class and then statistics. So, wow. yeah, but I did it. And if I can do it, you can do it. So, well, I'm glad my boyfriend's really good at um, all of that because he can probably help me <laughs> take advantage of any free tutoring that your school provides, too, because you can do a yeah. Zoom tutoring session. It helps. It's helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a good idea. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you. And um, if it's OK with you, I'll put your link to your um tiktok channel on the little show notes thing yeah that would be great and it was really great getting to know you too yeah i'm i'm glad that we got a chance to talk and squeeze this in today (laughs) yeah sorry i will get it up and upload it as soon as i can awesome thank you so much for this opportunity yeah thanks for sharing your story yeah thanks (laughs) all right see ya